Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann. Today, we're very lucky to be joined yet again by Jonathan Clean. How are you doing, John? Doing well. How about you? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. Thanks for coming on the show again, man. I know you're you're just saying you're, you're kind of in different time zones at the moment. Uh, you're on the, what is it, the West Coast at the I moment. Am. Doing Is that work-related? No, I'm actually here for Thanksgiving with the family. Happy Thanksgiving, and yeah, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Of course, happy to do it. The last time we had you on, actually, was to do with your first course, and uh, it was to do with high, you know, performance in PHP and kind of looking at different areas of that, tackling you know the whole web stack that you can kind of think of, you know, with micro optimizations to database to you know all, all these areas you can look into, um, and it was really interesting. And you know, like, I definitely recommend people to go and look at the Pluralsight course and and really kind of your talks and stuff that you did on it as well to further that. Mentioned actually on the the previous show that you were working on a composer course. And uh, you mentioned Jed's yeah, coming on the show again to like kind of discuss that. I think everyone in like the PHP world kind of knows Composer and probably uses it on a day to day basis, but they probably don't know everything. And I think that's one thing I've kind of learned by like, you know, looking more into Composer, you realize all the hidden gems that you have there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of things, right? Number one is if you're new to PHP, Composer is a tool you've probably heard about uh, and is kind of essential for development. If you've been in the PHP community for a while, uh, you, you've probably seen Pear, you've probably seen Peckle, um, and Composer, while it's it's not quite so new anymore, it's still something that has a lot of functionality that not everyone is using. So as far as background goes, I think most people know that Composer is designed to help you include third-party code. Uh, if you want to start a new project with Laravel or Slim, you'll probably install those with Composer. Or if you want to simply include one package that does something like logging, Composer is going to help you there also. But the other piece, and we'll talk about this a bit later, I think, is what Composer does for auto-loading and scripts and then the plugins that you can build with Composer. And that's kind of like the other pieces of the tool that are probably not as widely used as the the simple package management stuff. Composer hasn't been around since PHP, you know, from the beginning of PHP. So had there been like other attempts before Composer came around? Yeah. So before Composer, the standard in the PHP community was Pair. And... Pair was a fine tool. I think the main difference between Composer and Pair is that Pair installed packages at the global level, and Composer installs them by default locally, so to the specific directory that you're working inside of. And this is important because it allows you to have different dependencies for different projects on the same system. Uh, And also Composer puts some nice wrappers around the dependency management, so it's a little bit easier to use than Pair and easier to publish packages than Pair. It's really a first-class dependency management tool that's similar to like a bundler or an NPM if you're coming from the Ruby or JavaScript communities. But what actually do you need to start off with getting Composer set up then? Yeah, very little. So if you go to getcomposer.org, uh, they have a quick start guide. It used to be a one-line curl bash to install it, but now there's it's like a four-line... Uh, yeah, it's a little you, safer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a, little, a little bit safer. It makes you validate the, the hash of the file to, to make sure you're getting the right file, but basically it just downloads a binary, um, a far file, and then you can move that into a bin directory and then just just run it um, from the command line. 
Uh, and, and was it a similar process back in the day with Pear as well, or, or was that a bit more complex? Do you, do you have you had like experience with Pear in the past? Yeah, I used it a bit. It was it was a bit more complicated. I think the nice thing about Composer is you don't need any sort of uh, super user rights on the machine. You can just run it locally. Even if you just download the FAR file and execute that directly with PHP, as long as you have write access in the directory you're in, you can use Composer fully without needing to have permission on the whole machine. And and so, what is the like the I suppose the negative to actually making things global? Uh, you know, like if you, if you're sharing it between multiple projects, you're like, yeah, I just need this version. I need a version of you know Monolog or something for all these projects. I'll just share it globally, install it globally, like you would say, like AppGet or something like that. A Yum package manager. Yeah. So I will say, just first of all, that Composer does let you do that if you want to, and that actually is it can be nice for things like the PHP Code Sniffer or maybe PHP Unit or things that you want to have at a global level. But the there's sort of two reasons, right? One is we just talked about permissions, being able to install stuff locally to a directory where you have permissions that you may not have at a global level is very helpful. And the second is also having different versions of dependencies in different projects. So maybe you're working on an older project and you don't want to upgrade the latest version of Laravel or something like that. But in your new project, you want to use the, the latest and greatest of everything. So having a locally scoped dependency manager allows you to run different versions of packages in different projects. And I think it is that whole space is cheap, isn't it? Like, I, I, you know, you go with the argument of, well, you know, it'd be great because we're all sharing this. So let's just have a shared version of this. But in the real world, as you say, like someone wants to stay on version four and you want to bump up to version five, you know, you can't, you know, it's very hard to juggle that. And it's just Peg couldn't do that because it had to be a global package. Yeah, exactly. And I know there are a lot of folks who do contract work and might be working with multiple clients at a time. Uh, and if you need to have multiple projects kind of in progress at the same time, you really need to have locally scoped versions and locally scoped dependencies so once you've got it all installed you've got composer set up and you you know it's available to you you can go composer and you can see all the fun stuff you can do with it um how do you actually like define what you want to require yeah so that's all done through the composer.json file which is just a file that lives at the root level of your directory or of your project and that's analogous to the package.json in in the js world or the gem file uh if you're talking about bundler and the composer.json file is where you define everything uh, you want to configure about Composer. So this would be where you'd put your dependencies, their versions, any auto-loading you want to do, any scripts you want to uh, include. So that's just, it's a one-stop shop for every configuration parameter for Composer. That defines then what you want in that project and what I require in both dev and in production, like dev and in general modes and things like that. Yeah, it's a good point. You can actually separately specify dependencies for dev and for production. So people use this a lot for things like PHP unit, where you don't need to include PHP unit in production. So you just put it as a dev dependency. And then when you're deploying your project, it won't actually install that. Yeah, it just saves a little bit of that space. Um, and then from that then, so you do a composer install then. So you've got your composer JSON, you do a composer install, and you get this lovely composer lock file. So, so what does a composer lock file actually do then? Yeah, the composer lock file makes sure that everyone working on the project has the same dependencies. Which is very, uh, very important. Yeah, super important. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever had to trace down a, a bug from two people using different dependency versions, uh, <laughs> you're probably very happy that we have the composer lock file. MPM. Uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, so there's, there's the first thing is, is yeah, so everyone is, is working on the same dependencies. And the second one, which is sort of just as important, is that even for one person, 
the dependencies aren't going to change on you without you explicitly asking them to change. So if you move to a different computer or you simply uh, wipe out your dependency directory, your vendor directory, and then reinstall, you will get the exact same version of the dependencies until you ask Composer to update them. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where you think, oh, no, it's fine. You know, I just want the latest. And you realize that, no, you don't. And, and you do, it is almost like taking the ground from beneath you. Uh, you know, where you, you you have these set of assumptions on a certain version. You want to make sure that when you're in production, you do a, when you want to get fetch it in production, uh, you know, for that production build, you are getting that same hashed exact version. You don't want this random, oh, yeah, I just have another dot release that's kind of changing some little bits. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, <clears throat> that this came up recently with NPM is uh, NPM currently doesn't have a deterministic install process either. So even if two people are installing the same dependencies, they might install them in a different order um, and, and sort of have different trees of dependencies, which can be a huge problem. And very hard to debug because then you're just, I mean, the end of the day, you're then having to say git commit the whole of your you know packages, uh, NPM modules, just to make sure that you've got the exact same. Yeah, yeah. And that's something you really want to avoid if you can, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And 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 that actually, yeah, going on with the JavaScript stuff, you know, because so that in Yarn, um that they've now decided to go along with a lock file solution as well that does a very, you know, deterministic installation. Yeah, so Yarn is a project that Facebook built very recently. And if you read the the blog post where they talk about launching it, uh they actually go into a lot of depth on what the problems were and what they were trying to solve. And it's it's kind of a great look at package management as a whole and and sort of the kinds of problems you can you can get at scale. Um, so it's a good read even if you don't work in the NPM world. But Yarn is a nice a nice package manager and it also, like you said, it does the same thing the composer does with a lock file and it kind of follows the model of sort of best in class dependency managers like Bundler and like Composer. Um, and then, so yeah, so you've got now this lock file and you want to commit that with that. And and I suppose that we have been talking quite a lot about versions. Uh, you know, I mentioned the four version to five version, you know, bumping up and things. And, and I suppose, what is the importance then of a version, kind of looking at it from the base? Yeah, I think really what it comes down to is predictability. Knowing when, uh, when your code's going to change underneath you and when the API you're interacting with is going to be broken. And that's that's kind of why the semantic versioning movement started. Uh, and semantic versioning is, is basically just a way for everyone to agree on how to version projects so that you know exactly when backwards compatibility is being broken. Uh, there's a pretty good description of Semver at semver.org. Uh, and that's a that's kind of the, the spec for the for the standard. But it's it's very similar for it's very familiar to most people because it's it's a traditional kind of like three version number system with dots in between and it's the major minor patch version scheme. So you bump the major version, the first number, when you make a backwards incompatible change. The second number gets bumped when you add functionality in a backwards compatible manner. And the third number gets bumped just when you're doing a backwards compatible bug fix. And by having projects follow semantic versioning, in theory, if they do it right, you can know exactly when uh, your your backwards compatibility is being broken, and it makes it much easier to upgrade packages uh, safely. Yeah, and I think that is like, if they've done it right, it's one of the things, because it isn't a definitive, you know, it's something that is specific for each project, you know, to say, is that something that will be, you know, I can work out as being a minor change or just a patch? Um, it allows you as a developer then to be kind of a little bit more, 
you know a bit so because people do worry then you you say you know once you've done some developments you know you've 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 built it you've set you've set it up you've deployed it and then there is like a change or something and and you're a bit worried to do that change you're like no i was going to keep it on this version because i know it works on this version at least with this saying oh it's just a patch release i can be like oh okay i can be as confident as i can be with that project you know specifically that project yeah that's fine i can just you know merge that in and still you know bump my version up there because i can be i can assume that you know they haven't broken anything yeah, and I think one, there's a couple of interesting cases that come up. One is uh, somebody accidentally breaks backwards compatibility. Yeah, so there's there's sort of two ways to solve that problem if you do happen to do that. Semver, if you read the website, they actually encourage you to release another minor version that fixes the backwards compatibility. That's one approach. Or if you want to just kind of go forward with it, you can bump the major version to indicate that you that you have broken backwards compatibility. But you do want to make sure that on that previous major revision branch, uh, you you release that next minor version so people can upgrade to the latest minor version and still maintain the the backwards compatibility. So that's that's kind of one case. The other case that I think is interesting is if you are fixing a bug, but in the act of fixing that bug, you're going to break backwards compatibility, right? What do you do there? Uh, <laughs> and in that case, you kind of have to bump the major version because if you're going to break backwards compatibility knowingly, that's the path you should take. And I think people find that weird, don't they? Because it's like, oh, no, but a major version should just be for something that's, you know, groundbreaking change. But as you're saying, it, in the rules of a sem, you know, semantic versioning, that does warrant that type of change. Yeah, yeah. And and the my big pet peeve with, uh, with versioning projects is when people will refuse to release a 1.0. So you're on like 0.43.7 and you have no idea. I think what's... Composer may be one of those. I know. <laughs> one of the... yeah. <laughs> we eventually got a 1.0, didn't we? I think they, they you know, bless him, he was trying his best to, you know, put it off for as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, when you see a project like that, uh, if they're following semantic versioning, basically what they're saying with that is you can't trust this API because we haven't released a 1.0. So the API could change at any point uh, on, any, on any sort of minor revision because we're not at 1.0 yet. Which kind of defeats the purpose of Semver, because as you say, you want to have this, you know, ability to kind of work with a, a stable API. Exactly, exactly. So I think there's a lot of benefit in getting to a 1.0 pretty quickly and then following semantic versioning from that point forward. So in, even in your own local, like your own personal projects and also ones at work, do you, do you follow the Semver standard? If it's a project that's being versioned, yes. I mean, most of my projects, I don't bother versioning because they're either for people at work or for my own personal stuff, and I just don't need to version them. But yeah, whenever I'm versioning anything, definitely try to follow semantic versioning. And do you know like kind of the history of semantic versioning, like where it came out of? The the specification was authored by Tom Preston Werner, who uh, invented Gravatars and co-founded GitHub. GitHub's on Rails, so it may have come out of sort of their work uh with Ruby, but yeah, I don't know much more background than that. But it's de- it's definitely something to you know bear in mind and to kind of think of. If you are going to release a project, you really should be following the Semver. You know, if it's going to be something that's going to be used by many people, uh, like a package that you know you'll use, then put on packages for Composer and stuff. You really should think about using Semver, and and people are more likely to use it because they have more trust in it that you know these minor versions aren't going to break things, etc., like that. Yeah, and I want the other thing that's important to point out here is that there's nothing that's part of Composer or packages that enforces it, right? I mean, people can can decide. It's just not a standard, yeah. It's just a standard that's encouraged and strongly encouraged, but there's no way to force people to do it because... The and I suppose the scary thing is if you see a pattern that is three, <laughs> three separate, you're separated with dots, but they aren't using Semver, and you just assume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
because I mean, they can't control what you write in your code, right? So because <laughs> it's just a tag, <laughs> that is the scary thing. Um, but yeah, so, so from there, then, so you've got the semantic versioning um, and specifying then what versions, because you know, say in the pair of days, you know, or maybe when way way I'm thinking, you know, I just want monologue, you know, so I get a version of monologue and I type, I stamp that and say, yeah, I want this version, please. Uh, and you can be quite exact on that, you know, and. Well, I suppose, what are the benefits then of being exact to being, you know, I want it within a range, within wildcard, because there's all these different things you can do. Yeah, yeah. So there are a bunch of different operators. Um, the, the most familiar for most folks is probably the wildcard operator, which operates just like a wildcard on the command line. So that's like the star operator. Um, there's also ranges, so less than, greater than. There's the tilde operator. There's the caret operator. It's a little hard to go through all this stuff uh, on a on an audio podcast, Absolutely, but I, yeah. but I definitely recommend people look at the the versions documentation in Composer. And really, at a high level, it's just a way to specify which versions you want within some sort of of guideline. So most folks are going to be okay with getting bug fix releases, so effectively patch releases, changing that third number. If you're a little bit more trusting. You may want to be okay with getting minor revision bumps. So you're okay with 1.2 or 1.3 or 1.4 because in theory, you'll get new functionality, but you won't break anything in your project. Now, again, you have to trust the project, but that's generally a pretty safe way to go. But most people do not want to get a new major revision without spending some time looking at what changed and making sure that you're not going to break any backwards compatibility. So those operators really allow you to very tightly specify which versions you're comfortable with and like you said, you can actually specify like 1.2.3 and get only that version forever until you change your, your composer.json file and do a composer.update. So it gives you a lot of flexibility uh, depending on your risk tolerance. So so what do you recommend then? Would you recommend the, the way of you know embracing the Semver, you know, and, and based on the projects and the trust within that project, you know, to say, yep, okay, I'll, I'll allow, you know, bug, relate, bug related fixes and stuff. Or do you prefer the hard line of, no, this isn't exact? But I suppose with a lock file, really, you can, it is exact as it is anyway. It's just when you do the composer update. Yeah, exactly. So the, the lock file will keep you on the exact same version of everything until you run a composer update. And then it will basically look at what's in your composer.json file. And if your constraints allow something to be upgraded, it will be upgraded. So for me, I tend to look at, look at it on a project by project basis. So there are some projects that you'll read their readme or their about page and they'll say, you know, we follow Semver extremely closely. Um, you can be totally safe. We won't break anything. And in that case, yeah, maybe you can be fine with basically allowing anything within a given major revision. So effectively like one dot star or, um, you know, the tilde operator can be helpful for that as well. Uh, and so that's that's like one approach. But if there are projects that are a little bit looser and don't really follow it as closely, I might just pin it to a specific version and and only upgrade sort of when I when I want to to make sure that I read the change log and uh, and I know exactly what's going to change. So it kind of depends on how closely you're depending on the project and how much you trust it. And actually, that that's one thing. Actually, uh, speaking about the lock file and the JSON file, like keeping them in sync. Um, because they they could you know obviously they're two separate files and the I suppose it, composer doesn't if composer sees a composer lock file it will just you know install what's based in that it won't base any of its changes on the composer JSON file then that's so right. so how do they work in, you know together yeah so typically in your composer.json file you're going to have something that is a range whether it's less than or greater than or the wildcard or a carrot etc so that is specifying the versions that you would allow. And then the composer lock file pins you to a, a very specific revision like 1.2.3. And so in order to update the lock file to match the composer JSON file, 
you have to run a composer update. And you can do that either just globally, so just type composer update and it'll update everything, or you can do composer update, you know, monologue and update a specific package one at a time. And what that will do is it will check for new revisions on Packagist, find the highest one that your constraints allow in your composer JSON file, install that, and then update your composer log file with the version that it ended up getting. Awesome. Yeah. And also there is always that, uh, you, you get that warning sometimes when using Composer, you know, that your, the lock file doesn't match the JSON file. And that's based on the hash of the JSON file to make sure that it is, you know, this is actually relating to this version. Yeah, right. So if you, if you change your constraints, like let's say you were, you were at one dot star and then Composer happened to install like 1.3, and then you change the composer JSON file to be 1.2.star or something, uh, you will get that warning that you're not actually in sync. Like your your composer log file. It doesn't is... know if it's still right. It needs to be run yeah, again. Exactly, yeah. And that's the way of being able to, to tie the two together, essentially, isn't it? Because it allows you to be sure that, look, I, I've, done, I've worked on this version, this JSON version, hash, you know, file, and I, I, this is what the outcome is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also then, so so once you've got that, you've got the version installed, you know, that you want, it's actually, as you say, being able to actually use that. Um, you know, gone are the days in PHP of just including all these, you know, disparate files that we've got from the internet. Uh, we have this, you know, the idea, the concept of auto-loading. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, what actually then is auto-loading? Sure, yeah. So with Composer, you only need to install you only need to include one file. So it's vendor autoload.php is the file that Composer uses to autoload all of the third-party code that you've included. So that's the one file that you include in your project. And you remember that forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yeah, yep, it's pretty hard to forget. It's the, it's the one require statement you'll need. Uh, and everything from there is done via namespaces and autoloading. So for, mo- for the most part, the projects you include with Composer are going to put all of their code inside of a namespace or maybe two namespaces, and then Composer will autoload all the code for you as soon as you reference it with that namespace. And, and then so autoloading then, how does that actually work? It, it's, it's retrieval of, of the file? Because like, obviously you are eventually going to be you know, making a file that is within a data structure. How, how does it pick up you know, that that is the file I really want to actually include? Yeah, so for, there's two ways to think about that. One is with your own code and one is with a third-party code. But when you think about a third-party package, they also have a composer.json that they've defined as part of their package. And then in your own composer.json, you can also define auto-loading namespaces. And basically what you're saying is map this specific namespace to this specific directory. So Composer knows if we have uh, you know, foobarbaz as the namespace to map to uh, you know, the folder, like slash source, slash foo, slash bar, etc., it will go look in that directory for that file and and load it into memory. So you define where Composer should look for the files based on the namespace. You use the one then that's provided with Composer. Um, and it, it, there are other things you can do. You can autoload, say, like files and class maps yourself because that, that actually goes on to the, the standards that are available, um, along with, like, you know, speaking about, you know, logging and the logger interface and things with the PSR, etc. There's the PSR 0 and then the PSR 4 standards. Um, and to do with auto loading and kind of unifying, you know, the concept of how do we actually determine what, you know, because you can see, again, this is going to be a problem where people are going to have different ideas. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, what is this, the differences then between PSR 0 and PSR 4 and how they're actually included into Composer? Yeah, so the PSR 0 standard was actually the first standard that was created by the by PHP fig. And it's, it's actually now been deprecated. So it's the very first one and also the first and only standard that's been deprecated. That wah, wah, wah. <laughs> right, right. And uh, PSR 4 came along as sort of a more modern 
slightly improved autoloading standard. Uh, and, and it's really not that different. It just allows you to have a slightly cleaner folder structure. Um, there's some there's some nuance to this. Again, it's a little hard to explain without examples, but I talk about it in the course, and there's also good resources online. But basically, it allows you to have uh, a slightly cleaner namespace setup. And it, and I suppose all they're providing you with is this is the, a document to say how we would you know this should work. It's not really the implementation. So Composer is providing you with an autoload implementation. That's exactly right. Yeah, that so- follows the standards. Yeah, so it's it's really just a way to be predictable with how autoloading is going to work. So yeah, PSR four is just a standard, and it's something that Composer implements uh, for you. And you'll define in your autoloader in Composer, I want to use a PSR four autoloader or a PSR zero autoloader, uh, and that's and otherwise you'd have to write your own custom autoloader, which I do not recommend. Uh, PSR four <laughs> tends to be pretty robust, and it's it's going to support everything you you care about. And, and yeah, as you say, yeah, and if you can't, you know, if, if, if unfortunately some of the projects you do use don't use PSR standards, you know, you can use like the class map or in, ca- in the case of I just want to include a file that has, you know, something in it, you can just use the files. So Composer does provide you with quite a lot of hooks into being able to get your code in. Yeah, that's actually an important point because I, I use that a lot, uh, sort of file-based Autoloading is what they call it, but it's it's not really autoloading. You basically, in your Composer JSON, just tell it which files you want to load, and then Composer will just automatically write out the require statements for them. So you're just you're just requiring the file inside of Composer. There's not really any autoloading, but it's a nice way to centralize all of your includes in one place so you can see. And never exactly. have to write your own require once or require exactly. ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And because there is a lot of value in having a few top-level functions that are in the global namespace that you can just call without a namespace at all. Um, it's nice, you know, you might have a translation function that you just want to call with the function letter, like just T, right? So a lot of people use that, right? You'll just have like the function called T and it translates a, a string of text. Things like that that are nice wrappers to have at the global level without having to write a long namespace out to, to use them. Yeah, and like, you know, doing to do with like dumps and things like that. Yeah, totally. That's that's a very common one, right? The the dump die, so like DD is is used in a lot of projects. Um, yeah, and it's having something shorthand like that is is really helpful. So yeah, so now that we've got them auto loaded and everything, like you know, there there are other things. I mean, that that's really where you know people you can start up and you can use Composer and you can be done with that. You can be happy, you know. I understand Semver a little. You know, I understand that you know these these projects for you know kind of work on a semantic versioning. They work on a standard. There, I'm able to pick up projects. I mean, that that's one other thing actually we haven't really touched upon is that you know there's a central repository uh, packagist um, mm-hmm. that's you know intertwined with Composer. Yeah, that's a good point. We we sort of mentioned it, but yeah, so packages.org is the place that you can go to find packages to include via Composer. Uh, and that's that's sort of the place that you'll upload. Um, well, not really upload. Most of the time you just give it a GitHub link and then it will automatically crawl it for you. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the place to find all the packages that you're going to be including with Composer. I think also, you know, we should mention that you don't have to use public packages. I think because that, that's one thing, you know, especially where I work, that because, you know, you'll take the concepts of a, of a dependency or something, but you won't actually want to expose that to the whole world sometimes. Uh, you know, you won't want it to be in packages and things. And you are able with Composer to be able to, you know, say, you know, locally scope them to certain, you know, your data structures you have locally to the repository you have to say, you know, by the way, looking for projects in here or Composer packages in here. Yeah, that's actually very common for especially larger companies. You can basically have a private instance of something like Packagist, right? Whether you're running Packagist software or not, uh, you can have a private repository uh, that you just use to install things from. So you don't have to talk to the the real internet when you're installing your dependencies. (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. That's where, you know, my, my kind of understanding of it, you know, really stopped. And I was like, yeah, I'm using it. I'm happy, you know, and everything like that. And, and then, you know, you came along to say, you know, maybe we'll do a podcast and compose. And I started reading up more and, and looking at your Pluralsight course and everything and realizing, you know, there's, there's a peripheral of other things that Composer can do. And I think it's, you know, the slow iterations over it and you read the documentation, you can realize, wow, there are so many different hooks and things you can do to, you know, make Composer even more powerful. Um, and one of those is actually Composer scripts and the, like the event life cycle and i'm just wondering like maybe you could explain what the composer event life cycle is and how you can benefit from it yeah for sure so composer has a, a they have four categories of events they have what they call command events installer events package events and plugin events and these are basically events that composer emits when certain things happen so command events are what you might think of they they have hooks that happen before and after the install command, before and after the update command, etc. Kind of before and after every command they'd commonly be running on the command line. And this basically gives you hooks to uh, run scripts during these events. So this is this is pretty common if you have things you want to run right after a composer finishes an install. So that's that's a, a pretty typical use case. So as soon as somebody's bootstrapping their project, they want to run a composer install, and then perhaps after that they want to run something else to whether it's warm a cache or seed a database or things like that. And that's that's a great place to put that kind of thing in the post install command. Um, you also might want to add something before you run a composer update. Perhaps you want to run a little script that warns people about updates or um, asks them to do something specific before or after they've run a composer update. So it really just gives you these hooks into the Composer lifecycle to run scripts that you care about. And I suppose that because all these kind of things are very project specific that we're talking about. And I guess these things are really kind of used when you're dealing with it on a project basis, as opposed to I'm dealing with, you know, creating a dependency that's going to be used by many people because you don't want to be as opinionated in those cases. Yeah, exactly. So the a lot of the Composer scripts are are great for for the top level projects. So the project that you're you know, you're writing uh, and including third-party code in. So with that event lifecycle, what, what can you actually execute then? Is it a command line? Is it, uh, is it actual code that you can run? Yeah, so you can run a bash command or you can actually execute PHP files. Um, you can really do pretty much anything you could do from the, from the command line or from within your PHP project. So a lot of the time people will write scripts that do the work you need to do, like write PHP files that do the work you need to do check them into the repository, and then the Composer script will just execute that file. And again, the, the nice thing about this, I mean, people have been doing this for years, right? They'll put stuff in the bin directory, or they'll just write a little custom script to do stuff. But having all of this stuff in one place in the composer.json file makes it really easy to look at one file in your repository and see exactly how the project is configured and what you have available for, for scripts. You know, being able to say composer build and or production build or something and be able to like say, this is how we generate a production build. And it's all self-contained within that repository. So wherever, you know, that change, you know, whether we do changes within there, you know, with different pools and stuff, you can explicitly see what's going to be different as opposed to this disjoint, you know, completely other repository, completely other project or a couple, as you say, a couple of, you know, scripts that you have that do the deploy. Having it actually encoded into the project itself is a much better way to go. Yeah, it's like self-documenting, right? I mean, you, you can look at this one file and see exactly what's going on. And yeah, and seeing exactly how, yeah, th these things actually occur. Um, and, and you can actually go even more in depth. And this is another thing I didn't even realize is the plugin ecosystem that it actually provides. And we're now to actually add your own functionality to alter and expand like what Composer can do. I'm just wondering if you've had any chart, any like experience using that. 
So I haven't personally used plugins, but I've I've seen some plugins um, and and sort of like read about the plugins that people have written. Basically, this is a way to modify composer functionality. So one of the one of the examples that I think you pointed out was was basically using composer to include um, Bower packages or npm packages with composer, which is a little bit crazy, but <laughs> it, it, it blew my mind. Think yeah, yeah. Thinking, wow, this is actually exists. Yeah, so really, this is just a nice way again to get everything into one place. So your composer JSON really describes your entire project, um, and and you know if someone's asking how the project is set up, you just say go read the composer JSON, and that will give you everything you need to know. Uh, and that's that's kind of one of the other benefits of of pushing more of your configuration into composer. With with composer, like, I don't know how many of the other dependency managers in in other languages you've used, but like where does it mount up with you know compared to the npm's and the bundlers and stuff? Like, is it? Do you think that it's got you know? Do, do you think this is because I mean this is the de facto, and it, I can't see it changing. But do you think there is any room for improvement? So yeah, I've used I've used bundler extensively and I've used npm extensively, and I think composer is actually in a lot of ways better than both of them, and and part of that's because it it came after them, right? And right in the documentation for composer, it says this was heavily inspired by both bundler Absolutely. and npm. <laughs> so I mean, they make no apologies about that, but I think they've taken a lot of the lessons that were learned over years with both bundler and npm and built a really excellent tool. And I think the reason why I said it's better is because it does provide this additional functionality like auto loading. Uh, like these scripts, things that you don't have in Bundler. Um, a lot of that stuff's done with with other tools in those ecosystems, which is fine. Things like Rake, but but really uh, having it all as part of one tool is, is nice. If you if you understand Composer really well, it's kind of really a, a great toolbox you can use to to accomplish a lot of tasks in your project. Is there anything else you'd like to kind of like plug or explain, like relating to Composer that we haven't really touched upon yet? Well, that's a good question. I think I think we're in pretty good shape. I mean, my my course does go into a little more detail um, on that. If you go to Plural Site, it's called Composer Getting Started, and it's it's a pretty short course. It's about an hour and twenty minutes. And if you take a look at that, you'll you'll sort of know everything you need to know about Composer and and come out of it hopefully uh, feeling pretty confident in all the functionality that Composer provides. I think that's it. And realizing how powerful Composer is, because that's one thing, you know, I didn't, re- you know, that these extra bits you can do that can provide you with so much more. And, you know, you, you realize you think, actually, I don't need a whole other pack, you know, project for this, a whole other, you know, concept. I can use Composer to be able to do these things. Yeah, I think the thing that's really been impressive to me is that when you look at Composer with including third party code, auto loading uh, and then the scripts, you know, you can spin up a brand new project very, very quickly with very little code of your own, that does some some pretty impressive stuff. So uh, using the best-in-class tools and really leveraging their full functionality can save you a ton of time when you're when you're writing new software. Brilliant. And and actually, yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, following on from our previous chat, like, have you got any other Pluralsight courses in the works? Or are you kind of looking at other interesting things to kind of document and, and teach people about? It's a good question. I, I'm currently taking a little bit of a break. I, I've got some ideas uh, percolating in the back of my mind, but right now I just have the, the two, one on Composer and one on the PHP performance stuff. So we'll see. I've, I'm thinking about it. Maybe this winter will be a good time to, to make a third one. Brilliant. And would it, would it be related to PHP still, or are you looking into different languages? Yeah, so since we've, since we've chatted last, I moved back to uh, Wayfair, which is a PHP shop. So I'm kind of coming back into the PHP community a little bit more than I was the last time we talked and planning on either doing more stuff on PHP or potentially things that are technology agnostic. I know Pluralsight's looking for content around sort of communication, um, technical documentation, like writing style, stuff like that. So 
I'm thinking about moving to that that field a little bit as well. Is it really interesting? Because how do you juggle like the pluralsight stuff with work? Like, is this just a hobby that you do like at the weekends, being able to complete these courses? Yeah, exactly. Pretty much Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings are my time to do this kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just trying to work out throughout the week, trying to prep, yeah, to be able to actually do these recordings. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's funny. The when you get into screencasting, you realize pretty quickly that it requires. Uh, a lot of quiet and and sort of extended periods of time to really get it done. And <laughs> with the five minute, yeah, five minute video may end up being like a whole three hours or something. Yeah, so I think the, my my ratio right now is about twenty hours of work for every hour of content produced. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We see people. This is it. You see, this is why you definitely should check it out. You know, this is a lot of work that's gone into it and, and it's really interesting stuff. And then again, John, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, especially as you know, you're, you know, you're back home for uh, Thanksgiving. So I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Um, and yeah, you're welcome on any time, man. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Brilliant. Awesome. All right, then audience, well, it's been another great episode and uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe. <laughs>